All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. It's also on the prayer sheet if you want to look at it there. So we're going to start, as we have been going through our questions, what are some poetic devices? This could be parallelism. It could be figures of speech, just uh, things to note from the psalm. This one doesn't have a ton of them, but there are a few. I don't know if you see any before verse 6. I think there's definitely one in verse 6. Yes. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, um, it is a lament, I think. Um, but as far as figures of speech, when it says something like the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, we're not really talking about their tents, right? We're talking about the people who live in the tents, right? So that'd be the figure of speech where an associated thing stands for the people, okay? Um, then I think we see another one in verse 10. Not perhaps popular imagery, but when it says dung for the ground, what's the point of that? Yeah, I mean, in God's judgment, it's like so much waste just like lying about, right? Yeah, yeah, it's an apt way to put it. How about verse 12? When they say, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God, they're not talking about heaven or something from the pilgrim's progress. What is it that they're wanting to seize? Yeah, the land of who? Yeah, the land of Israel, okay? Um, then we come to verse 13, when it says, make them like. Like is, you know, a simile. So what is, what is the psalmist asking God to make them like? Whirling dust and chaff. Okay, whirling dust and chaff. So those two things are a picture of something that is... Yeah, just back and forth, temporary, there and gone, that kind of idea. Verse 14, I think, looks like it's going with it, but when it says, like fire and like flame, I think it's really tied with verse 15, so pursue them. So fire and flame, tempest and storm, what's that a picture of in 14 and 15? Yeah, God's wrath, God's judgment. He's coming down on them like a fire that consumes, like a storm that just overwhelms, right? And then verse 16 is an interesting phrase. Fill their faces with dishonor. What's the point of that? Verse 17 is a parallel phrase, might give you a clue. Okay, yeah, and cause them to be what with regard to their sin and their, yeah, to be humble, to be ashamed, okay, good. Uh, we could talk about name is the Lord in verse 18, but I think it's just a direct statement. I don't really think it's a figure of speech. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. And that would be, you know, one of God's names, so or title, I suppose we could say. 
Good. So those are some of the, the poetic things that we note. There's some parallelism that we will see between verse 4 and verse 12 with what the people say they're going to do. And then there is, uh, what are some repeated thoughts or things that kind of happen throughout the psalm? So if we see one that starts in verse 1, O God, do not remain quiet, where would the next call for God to intervene come in? Yeah, verse 9. And then I think there's probably one more. Where does the last one start? Yeah. So there seems to be, I think 9 through 12 and 13 through 18 are closely associated, but it does seem like there's a little bit of this punctuation. God, stir yourself up, deal with them. In what way? So just kind of that development, those three things there. Um, there's this idea of God's destruction in contrast to the scheming of the pagans. And then there's this idea, I think, as well of God's people and God's name that we see, for example, in verse 3, against your people, your treasured ones. Verse 12, the pastures of God. Uh, verse 13, God step in and do these things. Verse 17, um, that 17 is not actually the right reference here. Um, verse 18, the, the idea of that it's God's name, God is the Lord, that sort of idea. So there's sort of this development of God is, from the perspective of the psalmist, at least the beginning, kind of passive. And so he says, stir yourself up. Why? Because your own people and because your name needs to be exalted, all these kinds of ideas. Okay. So, uh, what type of psalm is it? We talked a little bit about the structure already. We'll come back to that when I go through it. Uh, you mentioned a lament. Why do you think it's a lament? Because there's, there's, no, there's no time for God to act in uh, talking about things that are, have happened to them past. Yeah. Now, is this a personal or a national lament, do you think? Yeah, and the scope seems to be Israel, God's people as a whole, not just one person's, like if it's David and here's my enemies coming against me, that'd be a personal lament. But if it's warrior people and all these people are coming after us, then we see this idea of more of a national lament, okay? Um, what are some truths about God we see here? Let's, let's start in verse 1. What do we see in verse 1 as far as a truth about God? Okay, he listens. Okay, to his people when they when they pray, right? I'm not I'm not trying to be tricky here. I'm just drawing out like these things are obvious, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Um, so we could say God responds to prayer. Um, how about in verses what we see God doing in nine through twelve, and then in thirteen through eighteen? If we were just going to sort of sum that up, God does what? God, what's he asking God to do? Destroy them, judge them, punish them, something along those lines. And the them would be wicked people, right? 
Um, so God judges the wicked. But then there's an interesting thing that we'll talk more about when we come to verse 16, where it says, That they may seek your name, O Lord. What does that hint at? That God does what toward at least some of the wicked? Saves them. Okay? Which is kind of a surprising note in the midst of this. And then verse 18, what is true about God ultimately after the, all these events take place? The status of God's name, what, what happens with that? It's exalted, yeah. Okay. And then what are truths about us or truths generally about people or the world as far as humanity goes? Let's start in verse 2. What do, what do enemies do? Yeah, so we got pride, but even the first phrase, what do they do? Uh-huh. Yeah, um, in the NASB it says make an uproar. So they're making noise and they're proud, right? So they're proud and noisy, okay? They roar against God. Futilely, we'll see, but they're, they're making this noise of uproar against God, Okay. And then in verse 3 and verse 12, what would we say that they do? Yeah, wicked plans. They plot, right? Verse 12, when they say, let us possess the pastures of God, that is a, uh, a kind of a scheme. Let's seize their territory, right? And even in verse 4, let us wipe them out as a nation is an even more personal attack to try to destroy them in terms of their lives. Uh, five through eight is interesting. It's not just one nation that's in view here. Notice in five through eight, the enemies are doing what collectively? They are, yeah, they're uniting together. And as a result, what sort of assumption does it seem that they may be making? We're united, then we're we're more powerful, yeah, we're strong, we can defeat this little nation here, right? But then what's the reality in verses 10 through 11 based on these, well, even 9 through 11, based on these historical examples? They had no strength before God. <laughs> yeah, no strength before God. They're going to be cast down, okay? Um, and then there's this implication in verse 16 if God fills their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, what would, what would that look like? What would we call that action on their part? Repentance, right? But if they do not repent, what happens in verse 17? Yeah. Humiliated, perish. Yeah. Essentially, it comes down to this choice. You can, like it seems some did in the land of Egypt, for example, uh, say, we can't stand against this God, we're done fighting against him, like some of the magicians did in Pharaoh's court. Or you can be stubborn to the end like Pharaoh and be destroyed and drowned in the Red Sea, right? Uh, so there's basically those two outcomes for those who are opposing God, experiencing his compassion or experiencing his judgment if you persist. So... Um, Let's go now. Let's, I'm going to walk us through this passage again. And let's start with 
this kind of idea. If you had someone who was actively plotting against you to destroy you, someone who is actively plotting against you to take everything that's yours and make it theirs. What sort of responses might you be tempted to have? I think one response would be, I've got to establish security for myself in some way. So, I mean, what this might look like in our cultural context, you might say, I've heard these whispers among my neighbors that people are going to come and try to take my stuff and attack me, so I'm going to go buy a gun. Or I'm going to install an alarm system, put up floodlights, put up fencing, something along those lines, right? Try to establish some measure of security. Um, in this psalm, the psalmist does not, at least from what is recorded, resort to the equivalent in their day of guns and, and fencing and security systems and lights and a guard dog and all those sorts of things. He turns to God and he says, God, it feels like you're not paying attention. Verse 1, don't remain quiet, don't be silent, don't be still. Why does he say that? Because from his perspective, God is quiet, silent, and still. So he's saying, God, it feels like you're way over there. You're silent, you're still, you're quiet. Stir yourself up. It's kind of like if a kid hears a noise in the middle of the night. He goes into his parents' bedroom and they're sleeping. Wake up! What is it? Okay. So there's this plea for God to step in. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to plead for God to step in. And what's the basis for God doing so? The first one in verse 2, Your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. So he starts not with, I feel like I'm in danger, but he starts with, they are your enemies, God, who are making this futile noise, this racket, this commotion, and they are the ones who hate you, who have lifted themselves up, exalted themselves in pride. That's not where, usually where we start. We usually start with, here's the threat to me that I care about, so, God, I want you to fix it for me. But he starts with, God, they're your enemies. God, they hate you. And I think that's important to remember, because if it's merely about ourselves and how we feel about a situation, there's a danger that our enemies are not actually God's enemies or vice versa. Like we assume, kind of like we talked about in previous weeks, or maybe even on Sunday in one of the discussions on Isaiah, that God is on my side, right? And the question we always need to be asking ourselves is, am I on God's side? And that's why it's important to start with, are they God's enemies? Do they hate God? Because they could hate me, and be my enemies because of some sinful choice I've made. First Peter makes that very clear. Don't suffer as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, because then you deserve what's coming to you, right? At some level. But with God, there's no possibility of that. If they hate God, they hate God because they're wicked. Because there's nothing in God that can be hated 
There's no flaw in God, no sin in God, that kind of thing. So starting your, your enemies, those who hate you, noisy and proud. But then he turns to their opposition to God's people. They make shrewd plans against your people and they conspire together against your treasured ones. So then he turns it to kind of the idea of the promises that God has made. So the starting point is they're God's enemies, they hate God. And then the next thing is, God, there are promises that you've made. You've said to the people of Israel, you are my people. So then that means that we belong to you. We are treasured or valued by you. And it's very clear from the Old Testament that God did not treasure the people of Israel because of some amazing thing about them. I mean, there's this whole discussion of you are the least among the peoples and there's no reason I should have picked you instead of somebody else, but he did. And much like in the context of, of uh, marriage, for example, if someone makes a choice of marriage, those two people now have a responsibility to value and love and care for one another, right? And so God didn't owe anything to Israel, but having chosen them, it's now a basis and a promise and a reason, something that can be appealed to, that the psalmist can say, God, we're your people. Look after us. God, we're your treasured possession. Take care of us, right? If it was somebody else's, uh, it'd be kind of like if you had some, I don't know, uh, I bought one time a pitcher from Greenfield Village, like one of those hand-blown glass things. So if you're at my house and you knocked it off, it might not mean a whole lot to you because you didn't buy it. It's not your treasured possession, right? But I, if I see it broken on the floor, I'm going to say, oh, that's a lot of money now going in the garbage, right? And so in the same way, other people didn't necessarily care about the nation of Israel because they didn't belong to those other groups, but they belonged to God, and so God cared about them. So, uh, what was the specific danger that they faced? It was this united scheme in verses 4 through 8, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Why is this a big deal? Well, because the name of Israel wasn't just ultimately about Israel. This was the name that God gave to Jacob to represent the people that would come forth from him. And so if they obliterate and blot out the name of Israel from the earth, that is a blot and a stain on the power of God's name and his character too. So these evil, proud, loud schemers are saying, let's wipe them out. They have a desire to destroy them, to end their lives, so that no one remembers them. What sort of hatred leads someone to say, let's wipe out this other group of people so no one even knows they ever existed? Well, in this context, the reason is not given, but we still see this same sort of attitude even to this day. The word genocide gets thrown around carelessly, but there have been clear examples where one group of people says, we wish that this group of people ceased to exist. So they go shoot them all, stab them all, bury them in a mass grave, dump mud on them and hope nobody ever finds it. That's the sort of thing that's pictured here. And against that sort of reckless hate, the psalmist says, 
God, we need your help. Don't be quiet. Don't be silent. Don't be still. And not just because this is one enemy that's coming against them, which is usually what happens in situations of, of genocide in our day. And we can make the argument, well, but sometimes it's these huge nations against much smaller groups of people. Sure. But in their day, it wasn't just one nation, but it's multiple nations. Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moabites, the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and Tyre and Assyria and the children of Lot. This is a lot of people. All of the nations surrounding Israel. Now we see this in actuality in um, the book of Revelation that Israel is surrounded by nations who want to wipe her out. But I think the psalmist could potentially be doing something figurative here of saying, here's all the people who have come against us. And whether he's saying it feels like they're all against us or whether he's saying they're actually all against them, some of these nations were powerful enough by themselves to wipe out the Israelites. And in fact, the nation of Assyria does later in their history, right? So what then should be done? Plead, first of all, for God to step in, and then plead for God to deal with them. And we could, we could make this two points, or we could make it one with kind of two parts. I'm going to do that. Uh, deal with them, so take action, and then what specific action is going to be taken. So the first is, God, rise up. And then the second part is, God, do something. Okay? So plead for God to deal with them. He starts out by talking about how God has dealt with other nations who plotted against Israel in ancient times. There's a bunch of names that are referenced here, but let's... Um, you can turn over the book of Judges if you want. We'll just kind of skim down through these four chapters. So Judges chapter 4 is where it starts. This is an important point that I think we should not miss in the context of this plea for God's deliverance. All of the examples that are given are given from the book of Judges. What's true in the book of Judges? The Israelites are going their own way. They have rejected God. They are in this terrible cycle of sin and oppression by other nations and then a temporary repentance, and then deliverance by God, and then sin of idolatry. And the cycle repeats, and repeats, and repeats, and repeats. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So, why was Israel being oppressed? Why did they need to be delivered? Because they committed idolatry and they brought it on themselves. That's an important historical context point for us to think about the way the psalmist is using these Old Testament allusions. What then happens? Well, skip down to verses 18 through 24. There's the whole thing with Deborah the prophetess and the um, uh, cowardice of Barak, who is supposed to have led the people into battle. So he is told, you're not going to have the honor of defeating them, but you will still be in connection with the defeat. You'll still be in charge of the army. They chase them. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and Sisera runs away on foot. 
All the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Now Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael goes out to meet Sisera. Come in. Give me something to drink. She gives him a bottle of milk. She covers him. Keep an eye out for me. Verse 20. Verse 21. She drives a tent spike through his head. Because he's fast asleep. He's exhausted. And the, it's funny. Verse 21. So he died. Yeah. That's usually what happens, right? Barak shows up. Jael says, here's the one you've been looking for. Sisera is dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. He was defeated by Barak. And God defeats his captain of his army who runs away, Sisera, by the hand of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So, when the psalmist says, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. He's saying, kill them and wipe them out. Defeat them utterly, right? But he's saying this on behalf of people who clearly didn't deserve God's help. Were they in a temporary moment of repentance? Yes. But the whole reason that they were oppressed by Jabin and Sisera is because they had turned away from God. And there's also the surprising detail that why in the world did Jael do what she did? It's interesting that in this context, that it's a woman who's the hero of the story, both Deborah the prophetess and Jael, the wife of Heber. And he comes to her tent because he thinks he's going to be safe there because there's this alliance. What causes her to violate this alliance? What causes her to put him to death? I mean, I think at some level we have to say faith in God and fearing that more than the wrath of her husband and the po political fallout from their allies coming after them. Uh, the story doesn't really go into it specifically. But we have this fascinating story in Judges where things are turned upside down. The men are afraid and not ex exercising godly leadership. The women are leading and doing the things that the men should have done. The man comes for safety to the tent of this woman and finds death, and God uses it all to deliver them. So when the psalmist says, deliver us in this way, I think he's asking for more than just, hey, God, take the problem away. He's saying, God, you can work in surprising ways through unexpected people. Even when people aren't doing what they ought to be doing, you can deliver us. What's the other example that he has here? Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna. That is in the story of Gideon. So turn a little bit further over to chapter 7. We're going to skip all the part about how Gideon is chosen and all these sorts of things because that's kind of a long section. And we're going to go to the end of chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they uh, killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Any question about whether they were dead? No. Because their bodies were laying over by the stuff that was named after them and their heads got carried over to Gideon. So, he's saying, give us victory over our enemies. Now, we can go into a discussion of whether their approach to the battle, there's several things about Gideon's 
uh, being a judge that seem excessively cruel and so forth. Uh, we're not going to go into all that right now. But the point would be that God can deliver from these people who are oppressing. The people were so afraid of the Midianites that they wouldn't even, you know, pre beat out the grain in a public place. They were doing it in the wine press, right? That's where Gideon was doing it in um, chapter 6. He's beating out wheat in the wine press, chapter 6, verse 11, to save it from the Midianites. So they're just so scared that they're doing things in the wrong place, in a hidden way, so that they wouldn't get all their crops confiscated from the Midianites. And God turns things upside down, and they kill these nobles from the Midianites. But there's still kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmanah, and so we see them in Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, verse 10, Ziba and Zalmanah were in Karkar, and their armies were with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zalmanah fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmanah, and routed the whole army. And then in verse 18, he, this is this whole discussion of what kind of men did you kill? And then in verse 21, Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. So God gives them complete victory over their enemies, the Midianites. Now, why does God judge the Midianites? God judges the Midianites because they were oppressing his people and because when God heard his people cry out to him, he had compassion on them and he heard their cry. And in the same way, the psalmist is saying, as, just as thoroughly as God defeated the Midianites, God defeat these enemies who are coming up, these pagan nations surrounding us. What is this defeat supposed to look like? Verses 13 through 15. Make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Psalm 1 has this illusion that the, the wicked are not so, that they are like the chaff that the wind blows. Uh, in contrast, the, the righteous, that's like a tree planted by the waters. The wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. They will not stand, the way of the wicked will perish. Exact same kind of idea. God Make them something that's destroyed and blown away and gone. How does this take place? Verses 14 and 15. God's wrath, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. So verse 1 is fascinating. God is still and quiet and silent from the perspective of the psalmist. The nations are this loud uproar. But when God rouses himself, it's like a fire sweeping through the forest. It's like a storm that overwhelms and just this deluge of water that drowns everything. So what seems to be the case, God is distant and powerless and uncaring, is not actually the case. And what seems to be the case, that the nations are loud and proud and strong and mighty, they're wiped out when God arouses himself to defeat them. But why does this take place? Verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The idea is that they would be ashamed and dismayed and humiliated and perish, and yet, when it says that they may seek your name, O Lord, I think there is still this glimmer of hope that some of them will see God's power and turn to follow after him. 
As I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, we see that in connection with Egypt. Some of the people start to fear God. Unwillingly, it's not fully or perfectly, but they start to fear God. We see other examples of people coming to fear God that we wouldn't expect to do that. Story of Jonah, the city of Nineveh, the Assyrians, who are referenced here, but probably in a different time, uh, we wouldn't expect them to be afraid just because some prophet who got thrown up out of a fish starts wandering through the city and saying, bad stuff's going to happen. And yet this whole city repents. They even put sackcloth on the animals, right? This is a very important point because here's what I think often happens when we encounter people who are plotting against the lives of those who are innocent and undeserving of death and plotting to seize all that belongs to those who are trying to do what's right. What's our response? Our response is we have to be louder than they are. Verse 2, are they pretty loud? Yes. But what does the psalmist do? He doesn't shout louder than the pagan nations. He calls to God who seems to be distant and still and quiet. And when God stirs up himself, God has the power not only to wipe them out if they don't repent, but to transform them and make some of these who are plotting to murder and to pillage into those who fear him alongside his own people. And we look at that and we say, I don't know about that. But there are people who have run abortion clinics and committed murder and done all sorts of acts of hatred towards other people that God has saved. But the question for you and I is, how are you going to feel about that if that person comes and sits next to you in the pew on Sunday? Think of some symbol of injustice or someone that you really think. There's no way that God would save that person from, from your perspective. They come sit next to you in the pew. How is that going to happen? It's not going to happen because you go and have an argument and you're like, here's logically why you're a terrible person and you need to stop. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen if you pray for that person's soul, which incidentally is what 1 Timothy 2 talks about, right? 1 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now, obviously, verse 4 doesn't mean that every last person in the whole world is going to be saved. But I think it means that a lot more people than we think could be saved will be saved because God is powerful and great and can accomplish his purpose despite all the evil that's in the world. But how does it come about? 1 Timothy 2, Psalm 83, when we plead for God to step into the situation, God saves people that, in Paul's day, it was people like Nero, and it was ungodly Roman centurions, and it was corrupt government officials, and Paul says, pray for those people. What do we tend to do? 
We tend to complain about them, badmouth them, say all the ways that they're terrible, but what we tend hardly ever to do is to pray for them. So why don't we see more change in our country? Because we have poured our efforts and our lives for the last 50 years into hoping that the right person will get in office and fix it all for us. Instead of, for the most part, pouring that same fervency into prayer so that God will step in and do what only He can do. Now, am I saying don't vote? No. Go vote. Am I saying ignore everything that's happening politically? No. I mean, I think we should have some awareness of it. But you and I will not fix the brokenness in the world by rallies and screaming at people and showing them articles and whatever other things we tend to think, humanly speaking, are going to fix it. What will change people is the power of the Holy Spirit as we pray and speak God's word to them. So, I would challenge you this. Think about how much time you have spent talking to people about politics or current issues, and how much time, in contrast, you have spent praying for their souls, and if there is an unfavorable ratio, like five minutes of the day you're praying for their souls, or not at all, and two hours of the day you're arguing with them about things, Stop arguing and get on your knees before God and ask Him to do stuff about it. And you may feel like I keep hammering this issue, but you've seen my Facebook, and I did a lot of this nonsense in 2020, railing against the governor because I didn't like what she was doing, and do you know what it accomplished? Absolutely nothing. And when I look on your Facebook and I see you posting articles and and arguing with people, do you know what it's accomplishing? Absolutely nothing for the most part. But what will make a difference in people's lives is when we pray for their souls. And what will happen if they don't repent? What will happen if they don't repent is what's at the next two verses. They will be humiliated and perish And in the end, know that God is the Lord. But if we think that that's a good outcome, now understand God's sovereign plan and all that sort of thing. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that God's unjust to punish them. I'm just saying if our hearts are so hardened toward people that we disagree with that we don't want to see any of them saved, there's something wrong with us. So we need to, like the psalmist does in Psalm 83, Plead with God to step in. Plead with God to deal with the situation. Romans 12 says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't take that on yourself. We need to spend a lot more time in prayer and a lot more time pointing people to God. Because they're not going to be saved by any political candidate, past, present, or future. They will be saved by Jesus if we are faithful to do what God has called us to do. And what has God called us to do? God has put you on this earth to tell people about Jesus. Now, are there other things we have to do, like go to our jobs and put on clothes and eat food? And Yes, obviously. But the heartbeat of our daily lives ought to be, who am I going to point to Jesus today, whether it be a Christian or an unbeliever? 
and let all the rest of the stuff fade in the background because you and I have a short time to walk this earth. And that has nothing to do with how old you are. Because you could be 41. There's a lady that I was talking to at a restaurant Monday night. 10-year-old nephew killed in a car crash. You could be 60 or 70 in reasonably decent health and something unexpected come up. We don't know how long we have, but however long we have, we can't waste it. We need to do what the psalmist patterns for us here. Plead for God to deal with the enemies. Recognizing I'm a sinner too. And God can take that murderous schemer, just like he did with the Apostle Paul. And that person that you never thought would be saved could be used by God to save more people by proclaiming the gospel than you and I may never have any contact with. But it will not happen if we do not pray. Let's pray. Dear God, as we look at the truth of your word here, I pray that you would set a burden in our hearts that we would be faithful to the things that you want us to focus our time on. Is it wrong for us to enjoy life? No. But it's so easy for us to get caught up in pointless arguments and things that don't last and just wasted time. God, I pray that you would help us not to rest complacent in just the easy patterns we fall into of so many things. Acting just like the lost people around us. Wasting time in entertainment just like the lost people around us. Living for ourselves just like the lost people around us. We say that we know you, Lord. Put a burden in our hearts to live that out and mean it. Pray this in Christ's name.